You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with host Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. That's me. Well, we all know that high deductible health insurance has forced 80% of Americans into the functionally uninsured category. They may not have $450 even in savings, the vast majority of them. So a $5,000 deductible plan looks like a million dollar deductible plan. So it feels like to these folks, the majority of Americans that are under $20 an hour, like the rest of us are in a country club. There's a 20% club of those that are in the care net and there's 80% that are out. So it feels like a treehouse of care. I have, I have not. And I think some of the anger on the streets that we're seeing in the headlines has something to do with the have and the have not. And it's not a good thing. So not the case with employers who direct contract with primary care, with imaging, with whole field pharmacy, with specialists like surgeons and labor and delivery, and with labs. Everyone above has a cash pay rate. That's why navigators exist to get people through this cornfield crazy maze called the American healthcare system. Who wins with direct contracts? Well, Employers will save 30 to 60% and now have control of retention, engagement, and attraction of good people. And benefits like healthcare are no longer a painful, out-of-control burden, but a toolkit to get and keep the best of the best. Ask anybody who direct contracts with primary care or any of these other pieces of the ecosystem if they'll ever go back to legacy middleman heavy healthcare. We talked to the CEO of eTex, which is the utility in Tyler, Texas, on a couple of shows ago, and he laughed when I asked that question. We talked to Cole Johnson of PJD Drywall a few episodes ago, and he laughed when I asked that question. Once you go direct, you can never go back. It's kind of like asking a kid to give up her game controller. So if you have a daughter or son and you say, give up your game controller, they're going to look at you like you're nuts. That's the vibe I get when people think about losing their direct contracts. So over my dead body. Well, so Adios handcuffed HR mavens. I have zero turnover now once I've got all my team on board with direct primary care, a subset of this direct contracting we're talking about today with the larger health ecosystem. Employees eliminate friction like time sucks, like deductibles and co-pays and waits to see for weeks or months or hours in a gross, crowded Medicaid waiting room. Adios DMV experience. Hello, app. They get the most meds now by telephone or by app. They get their tests by telephone and by app. It's all gets set up nice and elegantly for them. And it's just a beautiful thing. So the most important thing that really has happened though is what I call a sacred trust, a sacred pact that's between the doctor and the patient. That exam is sacred and was before high deductible healthcare got in the way. And it's the absolute backbone of good healthcare is a great doctor-patient exam with time, to do the proper questions. And the second sacred promise is the employer, employee promise that with good insurance, once upon a time, your finances were safe. With good insurance, once upon a time, your health was safe. And now 
with surprise bills and 70% of the medically bankrupt having health insurance, it's not safe anymore. So those two sacred packs are restored when you direct contract. And the third person that's the winner, so we talked about the employer, we talked about the employee, now we're talking about the doctor. So I call this the golden triangle. The doctors now eliminate burnout. Direct primary care conventions are the happiest conventions in America, according to four of our guests that have been on this show. EHR mandates, adios. Modern day equivalents of coal mine gigs, adios. So instead of getting black lung in a modern day coal mine called a hospital, now the risk is white lung. You get fibrosis from C19 and it looks like a snowdrift under an x-ray. It's terrible. No one knows more about direct primary care than our guest today. He's a Buckeye and a Case Western Reserve University of School of Medicine graduate. He was elected chief resident of his family medicine residency program at University Hospitals in Cleveland. I'm sorry about that, Dr. Gross. You had to live in Cleveland. Oh, my gosh. Um, so Lee Gross is a pioneer and a thought leader in the direct primary care movement. He's testified at the U.S. Senate. He's been at the Heritage Foundation speaking. He's conducted meetings with the leadership of CMS, HHS, Labor, Treasury, White House. It goes on and on. And he serves as the president of Docs for Patient Care Foundation, a national health policy think tank of practicing physicians who are committed to the establishment of an American healthcare economy, which preserves the sanctity of that sacred doctor-patient relationship. So D4PCF is the nickname, is the leading educator of DPC physicians around the country. It has trained over a thousand in the direct primary care model. And Dr. Gross serves on the board of trustees for an HGA hospital where he lives near Acadia, Florida. And he's also a delegate to the Florida Medical Association and is a recipient of HGA's very first humanitarian Frist Award, named after Senator Frist. Some of you follow him in his podcast. He's also received the Free Market Medical Association's Beacon Award. They were on our show a couple of weeks ago for his leadership in the healthcare market reforms. And he's president, if that's not enough, of his county medical society. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lee Gross. Well, thank you very much for having me. That's quite the introduction. Yeah, I'm, I'm out of breath, so I'm kind of done. <laughs> thank you for being on the show. Um, we don't have any time left now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, it's been a pleasure. I enjoyed it. Well, actually, your name is not new to the show because Carl Schusler was on three shows ago, and Carl talked about Acadia, Florida, and how you brought him in, and how they saved a million two hundred thousand for what was a four-star, but since not failing hospital, but one was on the brink of disaster, and how the two of you together resuscitated that hospital back to health with direct contracting. You want to just talk about that a little bit and tell us your piece of that. Yeah, so my piece of that is I've been working with DeSoto Memorial Hospital, which is a rural hospital in south central Florida. Um, it's a 49-bed hospital that happens to be in the county that is the sixth poorest county in the state of Florida. So uh, a community that has a 50% uninsured rate, a migrant farm worker population, uh, and essentially a place where, where a lot of people sort of left uh, to, to get their health care. And what we had done with them is, is started working with them to bring surgeons from out of the area to do cash-based surgeries in their facility and charging uh, uh, lump sums and bundled surgical pricing. So we actually had one of the first hospitals in the country where you could, could have a, a, a cash bundle for hip replacements, knee replacements, uh, and so forth. And we started bringing patients to that hospital from all over the state of Florida to have procedures done. Uninsured patients, self-funded patients, uh, health sharing ministry patients uh, were, were coming from out of the community to have stuff done there. And so we developed quite the relationship with the hospital, with the administration, 
They were very familiar with our, with our general practice model, which was price transparency and direct primary care. And when we sat down and started talking, we realized that they were just wasting a ton of money in their health plan. They, they were self-funded, but they were self-funded through, through one of the uh, large industry players that basically really just charges a whole lot of money for not a whole lot of value add. Uh, and said, you know, we really need to, to reconsider how you guys are doing your employee health benefits. And that's where we had the opportunity to bring Carl in. Um, and together we, we deconstructed and then reconstructed a very consumer-friendly uh, and physician-friendly, employee-friendly health plan that, as you mentioned, in the first year alone, going from self-funded to self-funded, we saved them $1.2 million. Uh, so that was a 54% reduction in the first year in their health spend. We are now uh, almost six months into our second year of that project, uh, and the numbers we just ran were astronomical. I mean, because we still have patients that are on the direct primary care side and the patients that choose not to, to participate in direct primary care. And the, the medical claims on the direct primary care side are still about 50% lower, even when you factor in the cost of the direct primary care. Uh, it's just been a spectacular uh, experiment for us. I can do the math. It looks like a $41,000 savings per bed at a hospital. I think any hospital would take those kind of savings for uh, just rethinking how they uh, engage the local community. Yeah, it, it's it's been spectacular. And, and in essence, what we've completely done, you know, you had mentioned in your introduction about reducing deductibles. You know, so what Carl and I did was we eliminated deductibles. There, there are zero deductibles if you have anything done as an employee of this hospital. So if you go to the hospital and have surgery, if you have an MRI, if you have a CAT scan, if you have blood work, there's zero out-of-pocket cost. If I, as a physician, order any tests, I have zero requirement for getting prior authorizations and approvals. Why pay a nurse to oversee the doctor? Uh, trust your doctors. And so we built the plan around trusting the doctors to be doctors and uh, incentivizing and encouraging the employees to get their care locally. And what we did was we switched almost the complete outbound foreign medical spend to about 80% domestic spend, which essentially for this particular employer, as, as being a hospital, it's essentially their right pocket paying their left pocket uh, to, to have their care done. It has been an astronomical change for, for this community. Uh, and when you now in a rural hospital see all of the employees in the hospital getting their care at that hospital, you see patients from around the state coming to that hospital to have care done, it completely changes the perception. And so what I would tell you is that last year, despite the fact that hundreds of, of rural hospitals around the country are, are shuttering their doors, last year was the best financial year that this hospital had ever had. Wonderful news. Every 10 days, a rural hospital is closing its doors and a majority of those or disproportionate share of those are in Texas. We have a uh, over 50 counties with no doctors, which means we have over 50 counties with no hospitals, no clinics. So um, we have another 50 counties with maybe one rural doctor. He's probably the local vet too, for all I know, but <laughs> it's not healthy for a county when a hospital shutters. That's one of the reasons that counties go dry of people is because it takes too long to go have a baby or get care if you break a leg. It's just, it doesn't make sense to live in that county anymore. And people just eventually move. Yeah, you are absolutely correct. So let's talk about DPC, our favorite subject. I discovered this show started out as a challenge to find, is there a holistic solution that takes care of the doctor, the patient, and the employer in one fell swoop? And I can't find anything out there, Lee Gross, other than direct primary care is that answer. Do you disagree with me? I, I think we've built the perfect mousetrap, quite frankly. So I don't disagree with you one bit. 
I don't, here's what I understand though. I, I don't understand that direct primary care has a couple of thousand doctors according to the DPC coalition, which you're involved with. Um, but out of those 2000, the only couple of doctors that I can find that are scaling this for employers, primarily employers, because it, it appears just when I had people like Josh Umber, who's a supporter of yours on, on our show, it, it appears that the average DPC has 80% local social media, we'll call it uh, business to consumer. And then the other 20% is business to business. So they're selling the local plumber, the local roofer, et cetera, the local church. But, but we also had Clint Flanagan on the show and he has 80% of his members in Colorado are employers. So I, I wonder if DPC could scale better from, from zero to 2000 over tw 20 years. Uh, and I wonder if it could have been 20,000 if we were more focused on scalable employer-based models like the Colorado model. What do you think about that? Yeah, I have mixed feelings about that. Um, first of all, I would tell you that it, it took Starbucks 17 years to get to 17 stores. So for us to go from essentially a handful of practices to well over a thousand practices in 10 years is, is a fairly scalable process. Um, especially in a, in, into a very, very strong headwind of, of healthcare reform and Affordable Care Act when people are penalized if they sign up for, for these programs. So uh, I'm not sure I, I will completely fold my hand on, on the fact that it's not scaling as it is. Um, and then when you consider the tax, the, the tax considerations of, of, of this as well as is also sort of faced a strong headwind. Uh, but, uh, but unless the, the, the DPC practices embrace I think employer-sponsored health healthcare. I think they're going to have a really hard time uh, making this the primary care delivery model. I just, I just, I, I agree with you on that. The challenge I think you're, that you have in this in this market space is that DPC doctors, by nature, are sh shunning third parties. They, you know, the DPC movement is is born in in uh, getting out of networks and dropping third party uh, third parties in the middle of it. And so when you are trying to scale this through a large entity, you are essentially putting another third party right back into it. And effectively, you're asking these primary care doctors to sign capitation agreements. And, and before you know it, if it's not done properly, you've just basically recreated Kaiser, Kaiser Permanente. You've recreated the next generation HMOs. And essentially, you're getting right back to the same problems that we left behind. So it needs to be done thoughtfully and it needs to be done in a way that does not insert a new third party entity in the middle of that. That's, that's determining everything. Because capitation I think is dangerous when I've had my value-based care guests on, they all pretty much agree that letting a stranger set your capitation rates is the sure road to disaster because eventually they'll capitate you down to zero. I mean, you look at MRI reimbursements, one of my business partners, was getting sixteen hundred outside the hospital, and now she's getting you know two or three hundred dollars for an MRI uh, outside the hospital. So she just got capitated down to death, basically. And that's we can you and I could both name dozens of verticals in healthcare that have been capitated to death. Right. Yeah, but but as you mentioned, you know, if you're setting your own rates, then and those rates make sense. I know plenty of imaging centers around my community that. You know, if they had an option to be paid, you know, $500 by a, a commercial carrier or $250 by the patient cash at the time of service, they take the 250 all day, every day. What is it about this? I'm, I'm going to call it almost like a religious fervor about cost savings to pass on to the patients. I get from speaking to all my guests that have been on the show, there's, five, there's been five DPC docs 
that they all have a fervor to find wholesale rates for this. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking about pharmacy, you know, the best possible rates for imaging and pass that on to all of the, their members. Um, where did that fervor start? Is that just sort of a natural outgrowth of sort of a libertarian movement or what, what, what birthed that? You've been around for a long time. What, what created that? What created that was it was driven out of pure need. So you can imagine that, that this business model that charges a small flat monthly fee like Netflix attracts a lot of uninsured patients. And when you're left as a physician, have an uninsured patient that needs something done, you are forced to, to solve that problem for them or the patient's going to go without. So you're, you realize that as a primary care doctor, what are you going to need to take care of this uninsured patient? You need access to affordable labs, affordable imaging services, affordable physical therapy services. And those are sort of the first logical things that we did. So when we approached the national laboratory and said, hey, if we could collect the money up front uh, when we order the lab, and then you sent me the bill for, you know, one bill for 500 patients, instead of you sending 500 patients bills and trying to collect from them, what could you collect? You know, what could you sell the labs for? And we were seeing 95% reductions in their, in their charges. Um, because you know, from the lab's perspective, if you ask them what, the, what is the most costly thing they do, they would tell you it's the most expensive thing is human labor to, to track down claims and to, and to get paid. The actual performance of the lab test is dirt cheap, so uh, they can give those away for practically free. Uh, and then the next logical out step from that is now that you have affordable labs, affordable imaging, affordable pharmacy services, affordable therapy, now you're going to need, these patients eventually are going to need a stress test. They're going to need a, a surgery. They may even need a hospitalization. And so over the last decade, we've essentially built an entire cash-based economy in healthcare uh, here in Southwest Florida. There's very little except for an acute care extended hospitalization that I don't have a cash price on. We've had two gigantic announcements in the last seven days. Here we are at the end of June. And the first one was the IRS is now seriously taking on look at deducting direct primary care membership fees, uh, just like you would health insurance. And they're also doing the same for these uh, faith-based, or not faith-based, but these sharing arrangements like Sidera Health. So uh, that's a pretty good move. And I think you've been working hard on that for a long time, haven't you? Yeah, we've been working with the White House, with the Treasury Department, with Health and Human Services. We've, I mean, for many, many, many years, we've been going back and forth with, with them. Uh, and on June 24th, one year ago, almost to the day today, we, uh, I was standing next to the president as his guest as he signed the executive order that put this in motion. I can tell you it probably took at least a dozen meetings with the White House prior to that to make that a possibility. Um, and uh, the rule was just released basically last, last week. It was not perfect, but boy, it was a monumental step in the right direction. The uh, other big announcement this week was that, and Dr. Marty Macri was on our show this past month, and he's standing right next to the president as he's announcing this transparency victory in the courts. The federal judge ruled that the hospitals indeed have to actually get their Excel spreadsheets out to the public and we now have to see what their pricing looks like. Now they pushed back in their press release and said, well, there's hundreds of thousands of cells. How are the people gonna read and understand it? Well, how about you post your price? You know, just post your dang price. You're all in, right? Not that hard. And what they're not expecting the hospitals to do and, and patients to do is shop around for their heart attack. What the administration is essentially doing is saying, you know, look, give us 30 to 50, 50 of your shoppable services, your MRIs, your x-rays, your lab work, your, you know, tell us what a, a hernia surgery costs and face it to the public. And oh, by the way, we, we want to know what the insurance companies are paying for those services, not what you're charging for. So I don't, I don't mean to get political here, but this seems to be a very 
DPC friendly, libertarian friendly, you know, freedom friendly, transparency friendly administration, both from the regulatory perspective and from the office of the White House. And I'm, I'm, I'm not smoking dope, am I? No, I think you're I think you're dead on. And if you look at the people that the White House has working in uh, creating these these rules and, and coming up with policies, uh, you know, their their background isn't exactly that uh, that political sphere. It is interesting that, um, so Katie Talento again was on our show a few months ago and she said that now the chiefs of staff have not worked together on a common bill for so long that they don't know how to do anything but carpet each other. Um, so, so they literally have no training for Congress to get stuff done other than to give away our tax money to the hospitals with a pandemic. But they do know how, do they do not know how to craft legislation that is DPC friendly or libertarian friendly or free market friendly. So it almost had to come from the, um, regulatory authorities and have to come from the White House. You can't get stuff done in Congress anymore, it seems. It's almost impossible. And obviously, this is such a supercharged issue with so many third parties, third parties that have gross financial misincentives to not do the right thing in this, that even a good bill turns into a bad bill very quickly, uh, because people want to put put you know, restraints on things. You know, primary, direct primary care is not a popular thing within the general insurance community. Um, you know, so this is, you know, even people that you would think would be putting forward friendly legislation, put forward pieces of legislation when you actually read the bills, uh, and track down the, 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 the references within these, these codes is quite harmful to the direct primary care movement. Well, so folks, while you're doing your summer reading and enjoying your, uh, you know, your delicious novels by the swimming pool, this gentleman is reading tax bills and legislative bills. No idea. (laughs) Oh my God! How many pages have you read, Doctor Gross? This has got to be ridiculous. Thousands. I mean, just the the yeah. I mean, it's it's thousands and thousands of pages, and just to to track all this stuff is just it's things look so innocuous when you just look at the bill, and if you just you know, you know your eyes just skim over the 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 tax code that it's referencing, and when you look into the tax code and you realize that the bill uh, that's you know, specifically I'll, I'll point to Senator Cassidy's bill. He's a very big supporter of direct primary care. And I appreciate mm-hmm. his support over the years, mm-hmm. but the bill that he's promoting basically codifies direct primary care as health plan. Uh, and you have 28 States that have passed legislation that says that direct primary care is not a health plan. Um, and it's not going to be regulated as a health, a health insurance product. Well, when the federal government passed legislation that says it is a health plan and it's codified in the tax code as a health plan, that creates conflict between state and federal law. And it also, the states that have not passed direct primary care protection now look to the federal law and say, well, we need to regulate this as an insurance product. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite harmful. And then they, they go on to put in uh, caps on how much the practices can charge. So you talk about a third party that's setting your capitation rates. What if that third party is the federal government? That would be the first time ever in, in, in recent history that the federal government would cap how much a doctor could charge for their own services. Um, so th- those are the types of scary things that sort of keep me up at, at night, uh, because once we introduce those precedents into, you know, if you're taking the most affordable thing in, in the country, the, the shiniest potential future solution to healthcare, and the first thing you do in response to that is you cap how much they can charge for that. That is, that just blows my mind that that could happen, but we are very close to that happening. So uh, that's in the IRS uh, proposals is the cap? No, that is in, in a, a bill introduced in the U.S. Senate and uh, has also passed the United States House. 
It was also bundled into one of the COVID relief packages, but was stripped out the last second. Does it have uh, legs? Is it something that might pass? You know, anything's possible right now uh, with these must-pass pieces of legislation. So you, that's something that could go into a COVID relief package. It's something that could go into a budget bill. Uh, but frankly, with this with this Internal Revenue Service uh, rule that just came out, once that's finalized, we only really need one line of legislation to make this entirely perfect. And that one line of legislation just needs to say direct primary care is not a health plan. Mm-hmm. I will tell you that the Internal Revenue Service rule that that came out, it does make reference to direct primary care being a health plan, which does uh, create challenges with contri- contributing funds to your health savings account. Um, but it opens up opportunities with health reimbursement arrangements, flexible spending accounts, Medicare savings accounts, general tax deductibility. So it's, it moves the ball 99 yards, but it doesn't take it across that goal line. We just need that designation that it's not a health plan to, to clear up the HSA issue. Well, um, one thing I noticed about DPC on this COVID crisis is that the numbers held fairly steady. People most have, I think over 88% of DPCs have uh, Spruce or some other app that you can uh, text or have a secure way to reach your doctor um, by telehealth. Uh, the vast majority of members didn't go away in this crisis, whereas uh, fee-for-service just completely got decimated. I know because I'm in that world with my allergy clinics, but um, it seems like value-based care and DPC were the big winners on primary care front with with this crisis. Does that make uh, does that resonate with you? It it absolutely does, and you know I, I sort of described it as we we right now we feel like we have survivor's guilt. It, it, we are in this pandemic that decimated uh, all of our friends' practices. It decimated the primary care practices. It's you know half the primary care practices in the country are near insolvency right now because they're in a fee for service model, and we're, we're in a growth mode. We we continue to grow. We we lost twelve patients last month and added twenty two. Um, in the midst of, of, of a pandemic. Uh, even when patients lost their jobs, they still maintained their memberships in our practice. They didn't, they didn't lose. Uh, and we're adding two more physicians to our practice uh, in the next several months. Again, we're, we are at capacity and needing to grow to, to accommodate the, the demand for, for the practice. If you look at our work that we did with this rural hospital, um, Frankly, they lost so much money from shutting down of elective procedures and people being afraid to come to the hospital that had we not saved them that $1.2 million, that hospital would also be boarded up right now. Uh, and you know, the ability to, to do that telemedicine with the rural population uh, has been fantastic. So um, do you think that we would have more DPC docs jump into this new arena if they didn't have to get a whole new load of debt. I mean, they're sitting on, if they're a new resident, maybe 250,000 or less of debt. And now they've got to take on maybe another 50 or 100,000 to start a DPC practice. Is that what the, is that the hitch in the get along for DPC transitions or is it something else? No, I think it's just general fear and that this is an insurance-based society and people are addicted to their insurance and they want to use their insurance for their healthcare. When a DPC practice says, we're not going to take any insurance, it, it's, it's difficult. Uh, and so I think we have to overcome the fear of that. There's a lot of education that that's going to be involved, but I think fortunately we're fortunately or unfortunately, uh, we're at a perfect storm right now where we have 32 million Americans that are out of work. Those 32 million Americans oftentimes got their health benefits through their employer. And now we have half the, the primary care practices in the country near insolvency. 
So if you've got docs that need to reinvent their practices and patients that need access to affordable healthcare, that, that is the perfect match. And we should be doing our best to flip all of these primary care practices to DPC practices in the next year or two. So do you think that this is a movement that is going to start increasing dramatically uh, and we'll see a lot more movement, much faster growth than maybe 200 practices a year? I, I do. I, I mean, it, the rate at which it's growing right now is, is astronomical. Uh, I hate to sort of get into the politics, but uh, I think one of the, the things that sped up the growth of our practice very rapidly was elimination of the individual mandate penalty for patients not buying an insurance product they couldn't afford. Uh, and so once they did that, patients signed up in droves because they could afford us. Um, if that penalty gets reintroduced back into the into this mix uh, and you penalize patients for signing up for our practices, uh, you know, so they can either afford their insurance plan or they can afford their care, but they can't afford both. They were having to choose between an insurance product that didn't cover anything or the actual care they needed. Uh, and then we're getting penalized for not doing it. So if that comes back, I think the EPC is going to have a, a very difficult time in the next few years, but we shall see how that goes. And now, if we continue to work with the employer-sponsored health plans uh, and continue, particularly with the self-funded community, the ERISA plans, and the flexibility that those have, I think the, the sky's the limit. I, here's, here's my concern about self-insured plans is they're mostly 300 plus employers there, you know, they're, so they're talking about maybe a thousand lives with the kids and the spouses. Um, they can't afford to go to a DPC who might have two or three locations in Houston or Dallas or Austin. They need somebody that can go statewide. They need someone that can go Texas wide, Florida wide, you know, Georgia wide. They can't, uh, and most DPCs, I call it kind of the lemonade stand mentality. They have a practice. Maybe they have an alliance with a couple of practices, but it's, I'm not a consistent offering. It's not a consistent pricing. It's, it's, employers don't want to have to cobble something together. They want something turnkey. We are working on that turnkey solution for you that keeps all the independent doctors independent, but also allows them to all function as one cohesive unit for inclusion into an employee sponsored health plan or employer sponsored health plan. So stay tuned for that one. So that looks like some kind of an alliance. Is that an announcement that we can expect soon? Or what does that look like? Uh, that looks like a combination of all sorts of things, but uh, it's definitely a technology platform uh, and a way to, you, know, you imagine sort of a, a bee colony where every bee basically performs its, its own individual function, but cohesively they all sort of work together to, towards a common cause. They don't necessarily know that they're doing it, but they are. But they are. Uh, and so we are working on the a platform that has the ability to uh, to incorporate all this the, the price transparency, the independent practices, you know, because when you're trying to to get all these independent DPC docs into into a, a health plan, they all have to perform the same services. They all have to charge the same amount. They all have to have set hours. They have to have set services, set ages, and you're just not going to get that out of a thousand independent practices. You have to have them have the individuality. And it's the market forces and the competition and the, the quality as determined by the patient that really makes that magic happen. And that's really where your cost savings are going to be. And so we're trying to harness all those things uh, and, again, empowering the patient in this entire process to be the, the end consumer and purchaser of these services. So, Well, you have Ken Thompson in Florida. So you've got, a, uh, you've got a good technologist there who understands the benefit side, and you have... Um... Urgent cares. He's signing up uh, left and right. The thing 
the thing, so there might, I guess it's going to come out of Florida. It seems like a lot of innovation happens there. Um, so uh, yeah, it wouldn't be surprising if it was birthed out of Florida. We will have uh, a few markets we're starting up in Florida as one of them. Terrific. Um, anytime, anytime soon that we can expect something in Texas or this part of the country. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if we looked at Michigan as a, as a good launching site and perhaps even Pennsylvania. So there's too much more to talk about and we've run out of time and we promised you, you know, a limited amount. So, um, let's kind of wrap up this talk and we can do another one soon as we have more exciting things happening in DPC, which is, seems like, gosh, every, a lot. Um, but let's talk about your, how do people find you if they want to reach you and connect with you? Yeah, so they can follow me on, on Twitter. It's at Dr. Lee Gross, D-R-L-E-E-G-R-O-S-S. Uh, they can go to my uh, practice webpage. It's uh, epiphanyhealth.org, E-P-I-P-H-A-N-Y, health.org. Uh, and then they can, if they want to make a generous contribution, tax-free contribution to the work of Docs for Patient Care Foundation, where we do all of this policy work to make these things happen. We've been pushing at this for a decade now. It's D, the number four, pcfoundation.org. Well, thank you. And if you could fly a banner over America with one single message for all Americans to read, what would that say? Health insurance is not health care. Yeah, that's true. Used to be, but that's not true today, for sure. Um, well, thank you for your time. And I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this. And it's great to have a, somebody who's a living legend. And that would be Dr. Lee Gross. And um, we look forward to doing this again soon. Appreciate you having me. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.